right, let's pray, shall we? Holy Spirit, um, I ask that you would be our teacher today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us out of this gospel. Thank you, God, for stewarding your word, that we can have the inspiration that comes from your hand-picked uh, authors, the, the men who wrote this down. And we think of John Mark today in particular as we look through his story of Jesus and God inspire us uh, to engage with this amazing story in a new way today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like in the lyrics of the song you just heard, Jesus is issuing a challenge to every human being, every person. It's the same level of challenge to everybody. It's strident, it's clear, and it's terrifying. Yet it echoes with hope in the ears of the humble and with contempt in the ears of the proud. This is how the gospel works, after all. It's good news to those who acknowledge they need saving, and it's awful news to those who still wish to save themselves. Same challenge, very different responses. Jesus says, what if, what if I told you I'm not like the others? What if I told you I'm not just another play? You're the pretender. What if I will never surrender? Let those words echo in your, in your mind. Jesus' arrival in the world 2,000 years ago is the moment in the great cosmic action movie when the devil, the pretender to the throne of the world, is directly challenged by the only force that has any hope of defeating him permanently. And every moment since that moment has contained within it a choice between two sides, God's side and everything else. A rift opened between God's kingdom and the kingdom of the world. And all of us who live on the other side of the cross, historically, we have to make choices every moment. We have to respond to Jesus' challenge by either taking it up, by rejecting it, or by trying to ignore it. Those are your three options. But take careful note of Jesus' approach in issuing his challenge. While it is clear and loud and courageous, it is not aggressive in the sense that we tend to understand aggression. There's no posturing, there's no trash talk, there's no shouting or histrionics. Jesus simply walks the talk. Remember from last week? And his way of living is so violently opposed to the, to the values of the world that the fight's on automatically. It's oil and water. In fact, we see throughout the entire book of Mark that Jesus actually withdraws regularly. He does not directly assault the forces of evil. Instead, he simply lives and evil is compelled to come and confront him. And confront him they do. Remember his strategy from last week. Say it with me if you remember. Follow the rules. Break the rules. Walk the talk, right? This is not a kick-down-the-door, scorched-earth approach. It's a loving, ruggedly honest approach that is, creates a hostile environment for evil. Living that way just simply creates a hostile environment for evil. We're going to see how evil is defeated with good, not with a more refined and civilized kind of evil. Well, that's a revenge movie. We're in an action hero movie. We're going to see how hatred is driven back by love and how selfishness is consumed by servanthood. 
And again, we'll explore how we fit into the script. That's really the thing I want you to listen for. I want you to be thinking and prayerful. How do I fit into the story? Because you have a role to play in it. Each of us has been given a God-ordained part. Jesus is issuing the challenge to each of us. And he says this, what if I'm not like the others? Then who are you? Right? That's the lyric. What if I am who I claim to be in the book of Mark? What if all this is true? If it's true, then who are you? What do you choose? How do you respond? We're, uh, we're going to um, explore how we fit into it, and we're going to do so picking up in chapter 3 of Mark. And I'd really like you to follow along for this whole series. If you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have one, there's some on the shelf back there. And I'd encourage you to open it up on your device if you'd like. If you don't have one on your device, download the AC3 app, and that will give you access to the U version, and that's multiple, 30 or more um, uh, translations of the Bible. And, uh, and as you're doing that, I'm just going to draw out the five big themes that we're going to walk through, uh, the beginning of chapter 3 all the way through the middle of chapter 8, the section we're, we're calling trouble. The first is this. Jesus withdraws from the direct tasks of ministry on a regular basis to rest and to connect with the Father. Even at the onset of the greatest cosmic battle of all time, Jesus' primary goal is simply to be with God. Second thing we'll see. This is the beginning of a team effort in the battle. Jesus selects apostles. He equips them and deploys them directly into the fight. Number three, we see clear distinctions are being drawn between Team Jesus, God's side of things, and the realm of the devil. If there were any questions about where the boundaries were before, they get answered here. And this is super relevant because of the world of subjective truth that we live in now. We've really got to understand and develop our rational and spiritual tools to understand there are distinctions in the world. There are some things that are and there are some things that are not and you need to be able to discern the difference. We see distinctions in that there's really no twilight. There's no middle ground anymore, and more and more and more it's heading off in these directions. Fourth, water over blood is what I call it, and we see that membership on Team Jesus is not based on the old standards of ethnicity or religious piety or even your family, your literal DNA. It has nothing to do with it. It's about the water of baptism that represents your submission to Jesus, and everyone is welcome to be a part of that, water over blood. And fifth, we'll see that evil pursues Jesus and the battleground expands each time. It's not that Jesus ever retreats. He doesn't retreat. It's that he is such a contrast to the world, such a threat to the powers of darkness, that evil simply is compelled to rush at him wherever he appears. Wherever he shows up, evil has to confront him because he is such a violent contrast. That's how it works. So let's, uh, let's jump into this. Chapter 3, verse 7. And we begin right away with seeing this principle of withdrawal. And you'll see it all throughout the book of Mark. And it's fascinating. Uh, chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7, chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So we've got to bear this in mind. In a super busy culture, 
There's pressure on us all the time. doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or some high-powered executive. Anything in between. The pressure on you to stay busy and constantly going, I call it bigger, better, faster, more. Well, apparently, in the midst of the biggest cosmic battle the universe has ever known, Jesus thought it was okay to withdraw and rest. So maybe it's okay for you. Right? So you'll see that pattern emerge. In, in verse 12, there's also an important point I want to draw out. Um, as Jesus drives out demons, he says this, uh, he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. And this is often a confusing, there are several passages throughout the Gospels, and people ask about that. Why does he do that? Well, we, we could spend a lot of time on that, but I want you to note this right now, that Jesus, at this point in chapter 3, is keeping the battle pretty low-key. Don't go advertise this. Keeping it low-key, and I want you to remember that because later on we're going to see how suddenly it changes. And there's a contrast that comes up in how Jesus approaches it later. So remember verse 12 of chapter 3 for contrast. But verse 13, we see the team effort beginning. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So, you know, this is the creator of the universe. It's the most powerful. How can you throw adjectives? This is God. He can do anything he wants, and he chooses to build a team with a bunch of knuckleheads, no less. Interesting. So it's a team effort. We see that right away. Then verses 20 through 30, we see a distinction being drawn out. And I'm not going to read the whole thing here for you, but this is an encounter, excuse me, and we start to see two sides how, you know, Jesus could have come with a message that said something like, mm, find the middle ground. Let's figure out how we can compromise. He could have easily teach. And there are great teachers uh, in Eastern thought and current psychology and culture and whatnot. Let's find middle ground. Jesus makes no, no play to that whatsoever. There are distinctions. And here's what he says. He's accused of being... Um, a part of the devil's side of things by the teachers who came up from Jerusalem. And he answers them, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And he goes on to describe the strong man, <clears throat> how he has to be tied up. He's making it very clear. There are teams. This is not about finding some kind of, how do we blend all the things together? How can we take things that are evil and make them maybe a little less evil? How can we dilute that a little bit and just make everybody feel comfortable? He's not making any attempt. There are distinctions. There's no compromise. There's no surrender. you got to pick. Verse 22 of chapter 3, we see how evil pursues him here, and the battlefield expands. Verse 22, and the teachers of the law who what? Came, they came, right? Jesus didn't go to them. They came from where? Jerusalem. It says they came down from Jerusalem. They, they actually moved north, if you look at the map, from Jerusalem up to Galilee. But they say came down because Jerusalem's on a hill. So everybody said, hey, they came down, right? But here's the thing. They walked the distance of roughly here from Allen Creek Community Church to the Tacoma Dome. How come? Because the light showed up. The darkness was being threatened by Jesus' presence, and they were willing to travel that distance on foot to go confront. They were compelled to go confront it. So the battlefield expands from Jerusalem, the center of the status quo of the religious elite, and they're like, wow, we got to go, go all the way out to the boondocks, out to Galilee to confront this. 
That's how distinctive Jesus' ministry is. Verses 31 through 34 now of chapter 3, we see how water over blood begins to function. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone... Oh, excuse me. Um, let's back up a little bit. No? No, let's go there. 31 through 34. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is a profoundly radical statement. How many of us come from some kind of a subculture where we really kind of play up our family ties? It's like, well, it's family. It's blood, right? Now, we hate each other, and we bad talk each other, and we treat each other terribly. But no, when somebody from the outside comes in, now we're family, right? How many of you, that's kind of your experience? That's all over the place. Jesus comes along and says, you know, I'm kind of done with all that kind of crud. Here's what binds us together, those of us who do the will of God. It's not that family has no significance. It's that doing the will of God is a completely higher standard altogether. Water over blood. Skipping ahead to chapter 4, verse 1 through 29, we see distinction again. And this is one of Mark's few recordings of one of Jesus' extended talks. And he's drawing a distinction between the kingdom of God and all other kingdoms by describing to us four really important characteristics about the kingdom of God. Four specific things that you look at them and you go, well, this must be the kingdom of God, therefore it's not this, right? There's a distinction. And I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to read the entire thing. You can later. But he gives us four things. One of the first things he tells us about is that the kingdom of God will be a minority. Most people aren't going to find their way into it. This is the parable of the sower. A lot of people are familiar with this. It talks about how a farmer goes out and scatters seed, and there are four different results. Only 25% of the seed that's thrown out actually grows. 75% of it's a failure for different reasons. So the first thing Jesus wants you to know is you're going to be on the small team. You're, you're JV. You're going to be overlooked. It's not the majority. It's the minority. The second thing he talks about, that's um, uh, verses 13 through about 20. Then he says to them, verse 21, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, you don't you put it on its stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. The kingdom of God is going to be revealing and transparent. It is no longer about image keeping. It is no longer about what your pious religious pedigree looks like. Jesus said, it's all, we're all going to know all our junk. Most of us swallow hard when confronted with that. I certainly do. But isn't there also a sense of, oh, finally, I don't... You mean in the kingdom of God, I don't have to pretend anymore? I don't have to be in the kingdom of the pretender? <sighs> Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what the kingdom of God is. Third thing he makes clear is it's voluntary. Verse 24, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The measure you use, the measure you, it's explicit. Whatever, to whatever extent you choose to engage in the kingdom, that's the extent to which the kingdom will engage with you. It's voluntary. You're not going to be coerced into it. You're invited into it. You're, you're, you're given a distinction. You're given a choice. You choose. The, um, 
The final thing is divine provision. Verse 26, he also said this about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. The kingdom of God is going to move forward and advance and grow and develop in you and through you based on God's provision, not you. It doesn't, the outcome is not your business. The outcome is God's business. Obedience is your business, but God's going to do this. So I want you to think about these four things. That the kingdom of God is comprised of a minority of people, not the majority. That it's a revealing and transparent place. It's not about image keeping. That it's voluntary. You don't have to join. There's no coercion, no manipulation. And it's going to be powered and driven by God's Holy Spirit. And I want you to think about the organizations that you're a part of. Do they reflect that kind of a kingdom value? Or do they have a different set of values? And what about the church? Evaluate Allen Creek as a church. Do we represent those things? What about another church that you've attended? Are there, are, is, this, is it a kingdom-oriented distinction from the world? Or do we look more like a corporation or a government or an extended family? All right, chapter 4, verse 35 and 36, we see withdrawal again. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And there's this strong sense again that Jesus is withdrawing for rest. But then we're going to skip ahead um, here to, where did I go? Sorry, I'm still lost. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is the story of Jesus driving the evil spirits out of the man into the pigs, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's two things that we learn from this. Evil is pursuing Jesus here, and the battlefield expands. How do we know this? Chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit did what? Just like, just like the Pharisees did. Jesus is just on a boat trip, but the evil is compelled to come and confront him. That man came to him. Now, so we see that uh, evil is coming to confront him, but we also see that the battlefield is expanding. Why? Because the the region of the Gerasenes, that's Jesus' first step into Gentile territory. He crossed a cultural and ethnic boundary there that's very significant. All the other confrontations had occurred inside a very Jewish context. Now he stepped out into a pagan context, and guess what? Evil still recognizes him. Evil still comes and confronts, and and evil still defeated by Jesus. But now it's expanded beyond just Jewish influence out into the rest of the world. We also see distinction um, in the man himself. He's both and. He is possessed by what they self-describe as a legion. By the way, that's 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army. And the man himself. There's conflict. There's distinction in him. Jesus doesn't say, let's figure out how to get you to manage your evil spirits better. Let's, let's get a management plan. For no, no, there's a distinction in this man, and we see it very clearly there. And then in verses 17 through 18, we see the distinction in a more potent way. Chapter 5, verse 17. After the entire episode has transpired, the pigs have run into the lake, and wow, it's drama! the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
But 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Now, this just strikes me as backwards. And because it's backwards, it's an indicator of this distinction that we're forced to deal with all the time. If I had just been freed of all these evil spirits, if if somebody just came along and forcibly, essentially, I would be very intimidated by that person and unlikely to follow him unless I was drawn to the light in him. And if I were the witnesses to all this, I'm like, wow, this guy, he'd be handy. We should keep him around, you know? He could probably fix other stuff. You know, my plumbing's gone bad. Could you do something about that? But no, they are so caught up in the darkness that they've been a part of, that they're afraid. They're making a choice by retreating from Jesus when confronted with it, where the man who is freed makes a choice by trying to get into the boat with him. There's a clear distinction once again. All right. Let's move on to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We see distinction again. Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Oh, this is going to be sweet, right? He's going to, it's going to be, they're going to welcome him home. It's all his extended family and stuff. He knew he was accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Oh, this is looking good. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense with him. Isn't that astounding? And before we judge these people too harshly, let's let's stop and recognize that sometimes when we're confronted with something good and something beautiful, our initial response comes from darkness. And we can be annoyed by it or we feel selfish I tease my wife about this, that this is a, a, a thing that will pop up. Somebody will say, hey, we're going to Disneyland. And sometimes her first response is, oh, I want to go to Disneyland. Right? We've all experienced that. And I tease her, but I was like, well, can't you just be happy for them? But no, there's something in us that rises up kind of from a selfish place. And these people, when confronted with the, the light, the beauty, they're just more like, well, what makes him so special? There are distinctions here. Familiarity counts for absolutely nothing. Jesus is also, Mark is referring to this idea of water over blood here. Doesn't matter how well they knew. They grew, these are people that grew up with Jesus. Doesn't matter. Water over blood. 6, verses 7 through 13. We see the team effort now really taking up, picking up steam. Uh, verse 7. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. That's a pretty significant power to give somebody. And so he gives them, goes on to give them very specific instructions. He gives them authority and then releases them to go do it. This is a team effort. He could have done all this himself, but he chooses to use these twelve. He also draws distinction again, because at the end of this, he says, and if any place will not welcome you, this is verse 11, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, what does he say? Oh, try harder. Find a way to compromise with them. No, shake the dust off your feet as you leave. You're either in or you're out. Now, let's move on to verse 31. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You noticing the pattern here? This, this idea of withdraw? 
But things change here. Remember we talked about in, in chapter 3, there's a low-key approach. Chapter 7, things really start to change here. Verse 1, evil pursues him, and the battlefield is expanded. Verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, right? We covered that earlier. So one of two things is happening. Either these teachers of the law have stuck with him and hounded him and followed him, pestering him for this entire time, or they've, sent, they've dispatched another crew. Either way, the establishment is jumpy, and they are following him wherever he goes to try to confront him. Jesus does a couple of very interesting things here. This is the first place where he binds institutional evil with spiritual evil. He says this is the same thing. Let's read a little bit here, um, verse 6 of chapter 7. So he's confronted by the Pharisees who say, hey, your disciples don't wash their hands like they're supposed to in the law. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So he's, he's blending the idea of spiritual darkness and spiritual evil with practical institutional evil here at this point. He's throwing down. This is starting to turn. Um, and here's why. John Eldridge, I think, uh, author, I think he, he explains this really well. And this is what he said. Religion and its defenders have always been the most insidious enemy of the true faith precisely because they are not glaring opponents. They are imposters. A raving pagan is easier to dismiss than an elder in your church. Before Jesus came along, the Pharisees ran the show. Everybody took what they said as gospel, even though it didn't sound like good news at all. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The Pharisees and all their brethren down through the ages have merely acted, unknowingly for the most part, as puppets, the mouthpiece of the enemy. And Jesus makes that connection right here in chapter 7. This isn't just a mistaken, oh, sorry guys, yeah, you kind of got off base. No, this are, these are the forces of darkness working through institutional religion. And Jesus confronts it. Verses 5 through 14 in this passage, we see explicitly Jesus using the follow the rules, break the rules formula here. He strikes back hard with what? God's Word with the prophets, with Scripture. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you guys are really mean and you've got it all wrong, so let's just throw out the law of Moses and let's find a way to do it. No. He goes back to the rules and then he explains, here's how you break them. Here's what they're finally supposed to lead to. And here's the other thing that he does. Verse 14, after he's just dressing the Pharisees down, Jesus called the crowd to him. Now, now the fight is ready. All right, everybody. Okay, let's, Pharisees, come here. Would you please stand up here in front of everybody? Now, everybody, I want to talk to them. He is now, the gloves are off. It's no longer, shh, don't tell anybody who I am. It's like, let's get this done. Let's really get rocking. Then, verse 24, what happens? Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. It's not that Jesus is retreating. The way I read it, and especially when you read the entirety of Mark, it's almost like he's setting a trap. 
It's almost like he just continues to move like John reports in his gospel. He's only saying what the Father tells him to say. He's only doing what the Father tells him to do. And he knows that as he moves, wherever he goes, evil is going to come and confront him and the battle will be joined. He's not retreating. He's almost setting a trap. Then chapter 7, verse 25, through chapter 8, verse 26. I'm just going to quickly touch on four of our themes that are um, revealed here. Water over blood, again, he challenges the Jewish establishment and he welcomes Gentiles. He said, I don't care about all the, we missed it. The rules got misused to try to, I'm here for everybody. He invites everybody in. Water over blood. Distinctions. He continues to assault and push back against evil spirits everywhere he goes. And then there's an interesting change. The pursuit of evil, it backs way down between chapter 7 and verse, or chapter 10. Now, I don't know why, but here's my theory. This is that Jesus bloodied their nose in chapter 7, right? It was a scramble. It was a fight. He's starting to set up the fight, and then finally, bam, this is the first solid shot. And and they kind of step away. And we don't see them coming after him. They do, again. We all know where the story goes, right? We'll cover it next week and the following week. But for about three chapters, we don't hear from them a lot. They, They have to back up because he really landed a blow. And we see the team effort really being developed. In, there's two stories in Mark. He, he puts them very close together. The feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. And in both of those, Jesus begins the process when his uh, disciples come to him and say, hey, we've got hungry people. What do we do? Does anybody know what Jesus' first response is? How many loaves do you have? Let's start with what you've got, boys. We call it asset-based community development in, uh, at Seeds of Grace. You've got something to contribute. Let's start there. He could have just, did, did he really need one loaf of bread to feed 5,000 people? Or could he just manifested it out of nothing? But he, he engages his followers in the process. And as we continue to read, we also see the grittiness and realness of Mark's gospel. We see it in some very clear ways. Jesus heals a a deaf mute, and he spits on his hands and sticks his fingers in the guy's ears. What is up with that? I don't know, but Mark records it because this is what Peter remembers. And there's something going on here. At one point, he heals a a blind man, and it's almost like going to the optometrist, right? Okay, which is better? Which is worse? Is that better or is that worse? Because Jesus says, can you see? And he goes, well, kind of. I see people, but they look like trees walking. All right, so he lays hands on him again. What's with that? There's something very real and gritty and human going on here that Mark records for us. And then at one point in this passage, Jesus refers to a non-Jewish woman as a dog. That's in your Bible from your Jesus, meek and mild. Yikes! This is real gritty stuff. So we see the, the action of Mark continuing. We also see that the epic battle for God's rightful lordship over the world has been fully engaged. Jesus is confronting evil in all its forms. Let's go to the next one. So you can just see, that's a, look at that pattern that we see going on. The unlikely hero has shown authority over Satan and his unjust claim on human beings by healing disease and freeing people of possession. Jesus has shown his authority over nature by manifesting food for 9,000 people and controlling the weather. That's in this passage too. Jesus has shown his authority over corrupted religious practices by holding a mirror up to the legalists, showing them how they've missed the mark entirely and become traitors to God. 
complicit with their so-called enemy. The fight is on. This is the heart of the action movie. We're in the midst of it right now. So here's my question for us. Are we conscious enough of this reality that God's good fight to take His world back and overcome evil in large part depends on us? Are we conscious of this reality? You see, many inside the church are still not in the fight. Many. Most. Instead, they're sitting unmotivated on the sidelines, dreamily watching it all transpire in front of them like it's not real, like it's just another YouTube clip. And they're sitting back and consuming spiritual goods and services. That's largely what the evangelical church in the West does. We're another, we're another strip mall business competing with the other strip mall down the street. While our enemy, the pretender, works overtime to keep us right here in the dark, sedated, confused, and ignorant of our true identities in Christ. And he does it by using the inverse of our three-step process. By tempting us to ignore the rules altogether, alternately to enslave us to the rules, or to anesthetize us so that we do nothing. But when we follow the rules, break the rules, and walk the talk, we automatically engage evil. Automatically. You don't have to do any more than that. You're in the fight right now, Allen Creek, whether you know it or not. It is of critical importance that we remember at this juncture that our true enemies are not flesh and blood. Remember, this is not a revenge movie. This is an action hero movie. Remember that those who persecute you are the ones we pray for and we love. Remember that those who strike out against you, who raise their fists in anger, are the ones who are being held hostage by our enemy, and they deserve every effort on our part to see them freed. That's why we are here, to see them freed. This is not a culture war. It's not a class war or some kind of Christian jihadist rhetoric. This is a call to live like Jesus Christ lived. We just read it. That's it. The fight will come to us. The fight's all around it. You're already in it. Jesus never ran for office. He never punched anybody. He never led a protest or a boycott or wrote a scathing Facebook post. And unless you count his showing up in the first place, he never picked a fight. Now, I think you can make a strong case that the incarnation, that God choosing to come to earth in human form, was the biggest fight ever picked. But after that, on this level, he never picked a fight. Here's what he did. Listen carefully to what he did. He sought intimacy with God. He healed the sick. He freed the enslaved. He fed the hungry. He showed compassion he welcomed the outsider, and he showed how God's rules lead to love and freedom. That's it. So here's the big so what question for us this week. Using Jesus' weapons that we just went over against evil, which front are you being called to engage? There are multiple fronts in a war. Which front are you being called 
to engage in. Remember, this is a team effort. If you haven't noted it, go back and read chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, chapter 8, verse 5. Clear as a bell. This is a team effort. Jesus says, pick. There's a distinction. This team, that team. You get on this team, you've got things to do. Which front, then, are you being called to engage with? Let me just name a couple. There's institutional evil. If you're called to fight against institutional evil, then like Jesus, live as simply as you can. Refuse to support institutions which propagate evil. Volunteer at the farmer's market. Grow some of your own food. Reject consumerism. Those would be ways you can stand against institutional evil. Maybe you feel compelled to fight against cultural evil. Well, here's a, here's a big one, friend. Protect your mind and your heart from the garbage that the media pours out day and night. Stop looking at it. Stop taking it in. And, and instead, make God-honoring art. Join the creative teams up here at AC3. Lead a Bible study. Start a small group. Give people a culture to escape into. You know, sometimes, especially when I think we show these trailers up here, we, on the creative teams, we get together and we go, oh, can we, can we do this? Yikes. And, and we laugh. And I think sometimes we go, oh, is that okay? But, you know, I've, I've always struggled with it, but I heard a quote on the radio just this week that just locked it in for me. And I can't remember who to give credit to. Google it later if, if you want and let me know. But here's the quote. Laughter is the sound of comprehension. I heard somebody comprehend right there. When we laugh, that's because I get, I get it. I can see myself in it. I comprehend. So when we make art up here that can get us to laugh at ourselves, and, and uh, that is standing against evil. It's standing against cultural evil. You can be a part of it. How about spiritual evil? Do you feel compelled to, to fight against spiritual evil? Well, what better way to resist spiritual darkness than to protect and teach a child? about God's love. Become a foster parent. Volunteer up in Creek Kids. You saw that. We need that later. Introduce a kid to Jesus. Join our prayer team. This is a way to combat spiritual evil. And what about maybe injustice? Well, sign up at Seeds of Grace and serve the needy. Get involved with living waters and support the most impoverished and persecuted around the globe. Help us start the AC3 care team, which will serve the struggling right here in our own church. Friends, there is literally a wall of opportunities for which to fight alongside Jesus right out in our lobby. Look at it. Let's take a look at that picture. There's a, literally a wall of opportunities out there where you can engage in the fight. And all you have to do is know your place in the story and then act it out. Again, author John Eldridge has one of the best, most concise little quotes that I, I've lived with for 15 years, and, and I'll use it in, in counseling settings and all kinds of places. Let the world feel the weight of who you are, and then make them deal with it. That's exactly what Jesus did. Let the world feel the weight of who you are. Who has God called you to be? If this is true, if, if He's not like the others, if he is the standout, rightful king of the universe, then who are you? Figure it out. Get help. 
We're all figuring it out. Who are you? Then you let the world feel the weight of that and make them deal with it. Distinctions will be drawn. St. Francis of Assisi was not a priest, not a monk, didn't own a Bible. He was just a guy who changed the world, changed the, the reason we have hospitals. The whole concept of a hospital began with that guy. And do you know what, how he lived his life? Daily asking two questions. That's all. Two questions he asked every day. God, who are you and who am I? And then he made the world deal with it. And thank God for Francis of Assisi. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I confess that there have been many moments when I've felt the call, the mantle fall on my shoulders, and, and I have been afraid, and I have wiggled out from beneath it because I, because I didn't trust you, because it didn't suit me at the time, any number of other things. But God, today, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters, that when we feel that call, when we feel the identity that you provide for us, when, when we recognize that it's your voice defining us, calling us, God, give us the courage and the strength to stand under it. Because you said your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And it's the pretender who would lie to us and say, you can't do it, or you will fail, or this is going to hurt too much, or you misheard. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you give us ears to hear the voice of your Spirit calling us out, water over blood. Guide us, protect us, and inspire us, I pray in Jesus' name.